Cotney Construction Law is dedicated to helping the construction industry in legal, risk, and safety challenges. Welcome to this week's Law & Mortar with John Kenny and Trent Cotney. Welcome to the third episode of Law & Mortar. My name is Trent Cotney with Cotney Construction Law and Cotney Consulting Group. And as always, we have John Kenny, roofing legend, also with Cotney Construction Law and Cotney Consulting Group. And we've got a lot of interesting things to uh, discuss today. Last week, uh, we talked about TPO, and usually that's commercial roof installation. So this week, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, decking. And in particular, I want to focus some on uh, plywood OSB type decking and some issues to watch out for. And let me give you a story. Uh, John knows this already, but um, last week I had the the pleasure of going out to uh, inspect a, a roof deck in an attic and it must have been at least 120 degrees. It's already, we're in, out of Tampa, so it's already 90 plus degrees out. And uh, I had the ability to see the nail pattern and to see um, whether or not water damage kind of soaked through all the way to the deck, see if there was any truss damage. But one of the problems that residential roofing contractors have is a lot of times they don't get access to the attic. You don't get to see what the other side of the deck looks like and you're uh, bidding or submitting proposals based on the, what you see in, in front of you up on top of the roof. So, John, you know, you've, you've been in roofing for 45 years. You've, you've seen and done just about everything. You know, one of the things that I want to do, I guess, is, is give the listeners some, some tips on what to do when they're inspecting decks, what to kind of look out for, you know, talk to us about sort of the real world side of things, and then I can kind of chime in from what I see from a legal perspective. Sure. Um, you brought up a good point. Whenever possible, you want to get an under deck inspection for whenever possible. So we'll touch on that in a minute for a couple reasons. One, you want to look for mold. You want to look for condensation buildup, especially, you know, we not only in Florida, but, you know, with our clients we have all over the country, you, you know, you want to look for that. A couple reasons. You can have hidden damage. Plywood can also rot from the ins underside up and start to delaminate as well as some areas and, e and even here in Florida you're allowed to use OSB board so it could be a big issue. When you can't get under the underside then you got to be even more careful when you're doing an outer inspection to look for these problems, rafter damage and so on. But a couple of good tips to look for is you know you have broken plywood, you get tree damage especially here in Florida, other areas of the company, a lot of our country, a lot of blowing debris due to storms, tornadoes, straight line winds and normal thunderstorms which cause a lot of issues. You think you can honestly see it. If it's really damaged and broken through, of course you're gonna see it, but you've got that hidden repair. Somewhere along the line, somebody's gone and repaired a damage and they didn't really repair the deck and they've covered it. So you wanna be careful looking for sagging areas for that. That also being said, sometimes it just cracks the plywood or the under, underlayment, and then you gotta be careful looking for that in replacement. So a couple other ones, of course, is water damage. The longer water is allowed to leak, you get plywood, which is delamination, brown spots, different areas, you look for those. Um, then when it comes time to replace, once you get through all that, you get your plywood, it comes time to replace them, you gotta watch a couple things. Make sure you replace full sheets. You gotta span at least two joists at minimum, but it's always better to tear a sheet up and replace a sheet. It just saves you a lot of aggravation in the end, easier to meet codes in different parts of the country. Normal nailing, four inches, you know, four to six on the ends, 12, six in the middle, depending on the code. Again, we're gonna have a more in-detail roof report coming out on this, which really has it, but code overrules everything. But general rule of thumb, that's it. 
You want to leave a gap. You always want to leave a little gap up three-eighths around the perimeter, eighth of an inch, three-eighths for the nail going in so you have movement for expansion and contraction because you're going to have this. You do, to, again, when you're walking on the roof, if you're tearing it off, if you're doing an inspection walking on top and you can't get in the attic, you must be careful because there's. A, I've seen over my years people fall right on in through because the plywood is rotten even though the shingle roof may look good. So there are just some basic tips in that. Like I said, we'll have a lot more detail in, in the roof report. Yeah, and that's all real good advice. I mean, decking is tricky, man, because it's we've seen and dealt with so many, um, you know, people falling or hurting or not properly estimating jobs. It can cause a lot of problems. So from a legal side, here's some things that, that um, I kind of focus on. And one of the things is, uh, you know, as you're going through and, and you're finding bad decking, you want to make sure that your contract accounts for that. Um, one of the biggest problems that we see with homeowners is they, they think that the, because they've got a proposal for $10,000, they conveniently forget to read the time and materials cost to replace decking. And it's important from a customer uh, relationship standpoint that you really hit that point home because rarely are, are you going to encounter a roof that has a perfect deck. There's, you know, they've called you out because there's a leak. So more than likely there's going to be at least, you know, one sheet you're going to have to replace. So you need to have that conversation up front, make sure that your contract accounts for that. And uh, that's one of the biggest sore spots that I see with roofing contractors across the United States that do residential is homeowners not wanting to, to pay for bad decking. Um, best practices, take photos, take photos of everything. Okay. Even if you're in a state that doesn't require in progress inspections, uh, it's a good idea to maintain photographs so you can show the homeowner exactly what was replaced, what it looked like, what it didn't look like. Um, one interesting thing that I had happen a while back, uh, John, and I don't know if you've ever had this, but I got into, I'm representing the, the roofing contractor and we're in a dispute with the homeowner. And the homeowner was trying to argue that there were certain pieces of decking that should have been replaced because they had water spots on it. And we had to argue that just because you got a water spot, it doesn't necessarily mean the decking is bad. I mean, normally, you know, from a layperson's standpoint, what I'm looking for is I'm looking, is it spongy? Is it, does it maintain its structural integrity? You know, what does it look like? Um, but a water stain in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean the decking is bad. Am I right there? Or, or what do you look for when you're looking at No, it? that's correct. I mean, you can even get decking that has a brown stain just from aging in it that may look like water and has nothing to do with water. Plywood is like anything else. When it's made brand new, or even OSB for that matter, but plywood especially, it has a moisture content in it right coming out of the mill. And, and if you're in a drier area or you've got proper ventilation, that plywood's going to dry out over time. I've seen it. Biggest things to look for on that, and again, this comes down to when in doubt, definitely replace it. Yeah. But as long as you, you know, your layers of whatever, you know, plywood's minimum of three layers, laminated cross section. If it's solid and there's no delamination, it's probably a good piece of plywood, you know, you know, but you ne does not necessarily, I agree, does not necessarily mean that it's bad plywood. Yeah, and it was ironic, you know, I'm talking to our, our customer and I'm saying, look, man, you get paid to replace this stuff. Why, why don't you just replace it? And the guy said, look, I was trying to save the homeowner money. And, you know, I, I get that. But this is where managing your customer expectations, you know, and yeah. it's difficult because especially if you're in a place like, you know, Florida, Louisiana, or where you can expect a lot of rain, you don't have a lot of time to be getting yes, no calls from the homeowner. You got a, you got a lot of liability there. So you want to make sure that you're, you know, at least drying it in uh, before the next storm comes. 
Something else I want to mention from a liability standpoint, and this is something that I see a lot, um, is you go to replace the deck, pull up the deck, and then you realize you got a lot worse underneath that deck. Okay, you got Raptor trust damage, you got all kinds of stuff. And uh, in some states, Florida's a great example, uh, you got to be real careful once you start getting into that, that uh, underneath deck structural work because that requires additional licensure that you may or may not have. And there's also some structural engineering components that you've got to be concerned about. So oftentimes there's this gray area, depending on what state you're in, that roofing contractors have to kind of navigate because they're looking at, you know, do I scab on here? Is it going to work? Is this going to fit? You know, and again, from, you know, conservative legal standpoint, what I want is just to make sure you're a teetotaler and, you know, if, if it looks like there's any engineering issues whatsoever, you make that call, you know, you get an outside consultant to come in and take a look at it. Uh, but it's, it's a difficult, it's, it's, you know, it's like we were talking about. If you're right in the middle of a rainy season and you've got to move forward and you're, run, you're risking having a, uh, a rained out house or, you know, putting decking over a questionable trust, it's a tough call. Uh, so what's your experience been, John? Yeah, I mean, a couple things here in Florida and a lot of other states, depending on how you're licensed, I mean, you'd be in a situation where as a just a roofing contractor, you really are not by law allowed to even do that repair. So you're required to bring a general contractor in. Um, if you're a roofer that has a general contracting license, that's a little bit different. You can do that. Then uh, the majority of the states, the building code's not quite the same and you're allowed to do that. Then you've still got the liability issue as you brought up on the legal side. Um, you know, but honestly, the most I've seen is pretty much you, you put a sister next to it, you fasten it off, right. and cover it with a deck and move on. That, that's, unfortunately, that's real world, but that's what goes on. But you got to use your common judgment. If, you know, if, it, if it's in question, you, you know, you can get a, you work on it the correct way. But if it's in question, you know what you got to do. You got to replace it. Whether you're licensed or not, you got to get the right people. The last other tip I'll throw in there that you brought up about the plywood with the homeowner managing your customer, you brought a great one up. I know whether you're commercial or you're residential, but especially residential and plywood decking, when you do your inspection, you sell the roof, you know pretty much from your professional experience what you might have run into one sheet, five sheets, 10 sheets, the whole roof. It is a lot easier to let that customer know prior to signing the contract that look, if we think this is our professional opinion, you may have five sheets of plywood based upon our inspection that needs to be replaced. So they know the money that it's gonna cost, not just how much per sheet that's in your thing. You tell them we're not gonna replace it unless it needs to. It preps them for the issue when it comes. So all of a sudden you run into it, like most homes are done in a day, unless they're a large home. But a lot of homes like, you know, Trent here, especially here in Florida and other parts of the country, it's 18, 20 squares, a crew goes in and knocks it out and they're done by two o'clock in the afternoon and they're on to the next one. Well, now all of a sudden you got plywood, they're there two days, they're tearing it off, the homeowner was expecting $8,000 and now it's 20,000. Yeah, you know, they're not gonna wanna pay that. So again, manage your customer up front. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, um, there are certain jurisdictions or states that, that have um, a lot of regulation, you know. California, Florida, Chicago, great examples of, of places up in the Northeast. Um, but then there are other states that it's, it's more wide open, you know, Texas, parts of the Midwest. And anytime that you're engaged in, in any kind of roofing out there, even if your state doesn't have a uh, strict set of, of regulations, like here in Florida, for example, we've got the Florida Building Code. 
um, you know, you can always follow the international code or follow the manufacturer recommendations. You definitely want to follow whatever the recommendations are for the product that you're installing, including a nail pattern for your area. Um, the other thing that, that I want to touch on, John, in, in this episode, uh, given that we're close to storm season, there's at least one storm that I heard that's, that's out there, uh, is talk about, um, you know, tarping and, and uh, you know, if you, can't, if you can't get a dry-in in place, what are some best practices for a temporary dry-in? As a lawyer, I'm always concerned about, you know, customers going out and uh, having the crew not doing their best job putting the tarp on and then flooding out the house. You know, that's, that's a, a nightmare because you're never going to get paid. There's, you're going to have to make an insurance claim. It's a very difficult position to be in. So what would you say, you know, to people that are listening, what's some best practices for, for temporary dry-ins? Well, if you get put into a position where you where your best option is a blue tarp, um, which even happens if you got a thunderstorm coming with <clears throat> the storm season, laying it over top of the roof and throwing some nails around the perimeter and walking away is not going to do the job. A twenty mile an hour wind's going to blow it off. Uh, you know, it's always good. It's very cheap. They still sell it in Home Depot. They still sell it in all your supply houses. You get some masonry laths, some simple wood lath and you put some nailers in it, you go around the perimeter, you tack it off with that through the nails. So you have a compression between the, uh, actually the wood and the tarp. So the tarp's just not floating in between. So you got something compressing the wood, which holds the tarp down. And it's still good practice to take a couple of them. And I, I've seen roofers still doing this. You know, again, go back to what you old school, I call it, but you run up and down the roof a couple rows with the same thing. You're better off having a couple of nail holes in the blue tarp with a, with a lath board or screw it down nice and tight. Because if that tarp doesn't get a chance to get wind under it and blow, you're going you're gonna to do, even if that nail hole leaks, your damage in that house is going to be so minimal that it's, it's okay. You know, it's almost an okay point. But definitely a tarp alone won't do it. You, you have to fasten some kind of compression down on the tarp. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And again, different states and jurisdictions have different requirements for temporary um, coverings. Um, some states limit the amount of months or, or uh, time that you can have it up there. And obviously, if you're doing insurance work, you want to be careful about that as well, uh, especially costs for temporary dry-in and tarps, if that's what you're using. Um, you know, last thing I want to mention, I guess, John, you know, before we, we wrap it up here, is uh, sort of disaster preparedness. And it's, you know, 2020 has just been a crazy year. You know, you and I talk about it every day. Um, it seems like every day there's a, there's a new crisis level situation that businesses are having to deal with. Um, why don't you talk to people a little bit about disaster preparedness and kind of, you know, as we're getting closer to storm season, you know, maybe just some, some good ideas, some good thoughts that people can kind of take back and maybe work on it now before we end up getting that hurricane or, or end up getting that big storm. Sure. I mean, one of the things I've always worked on, you got to look at a hurricane plan or a disaster plan almost in the same stages as you would a disaster. I mean, especially here, anywhere along the Gulf Coast, and now up and down the eastern seaboard. I mean, you're not exempt even in New York. I mean, we've they've gotten hurricanes coming right up through there more, more now than they ever did before. So you got to be prepared. I always like to look at it in stages. You know, if there's a tropical storm warning, we have one out there now. Um, we're not first day in. We're we're already up to a sea storm. We had two that developed early, one out. You need to start preparing. Preparing is don't overload your jobs. Don't be bringing your material in. You know, stage it out. Just keep watching and waiting. 
Now it gets up to a storm and the track starts coming your way. It could be three days out, five days out. Some of them coming across the Atlantic, you got to listen to it for 14 days. Again, try to stay, you know, look at the projections, stay ahead. Get, this is for your job sites, get that down. Don't overload, don't over plan, just kind of work with it. It's a lot cheaper than trying to get it down. If you are stuck in a storm coming in, sometimes they switch in that. You want to make sure you tarp your material real well. It's okay, you're going to have to use ratchet straps, fasten it, you know, this is more for commercial guys. Strap it into your roof. I mean, I know here a couple years ago, four years ago, we had this storm come up through. There was buildings we had loaded that were 15 stories high. There was no way with the, we were getting all that off of the roof and all that. And we ratchet strapped it down into the deck and it, and it made it through. You just have to do that. Make sure you don't have any loose debris flying around, all those things like that. Then you've got to have it. You should already have a disaster plan because you've gone through COVID. And now we've got the riots and, and everything else going. But you've got to have a call list for your employees. What do you do if power's out? Importantly, employees and your staff should come first in a, in a major storm. Make sure they're safe, make sure they have shelter, make sure they're okay, then go service your customer. Yeah, those are some great tips. And, you know, um, we always believe here, you know, policies, procedures, SOPs. You know, you always want to have that playbook for any crisis. And one of the things that I always recommend that any business owner uh, engage in this at least once a year where you sit down and you work with your management team and you game play every potential crisis, okay? And, and you write out, okay, here's steps one through 10. And it may not be every step that you need, but at least you're thinking about it, okay? And, and removing the uncertainty helps alleviate the anxiety of a crisis level event. So I don't care whether it's, it's a pandemic, it's, it's you know, protests that are inhibiting your job site, it's, um, you know, uh, whatever it might be, you've got a playbook that you can go to and it takes away some of that uh, emotion that you're feeling, gives you um, sort of where to go and how to go about doing it. And that's, that's the whole point of any documentation is you get rid of that uncertainty, you get rid of that ambiguity. Everybody hates lawyers, I get it, but this is one of those things that if you have it, it, it it's, it's like insurance. You don't, you, know, you, know, you don't need it until you need it and that's when you need it. So. Um, you know, think about it right now. We're in, in you know, storm season has just started. Um, work with your people now to get that SOP in place so that you know where your vendors are, you know where your suppliers are, you know how to contact your employees, you know how to deal with jobs, you know how to engage in triage if, if it's in your area, you know how to work with roofing contractors outside your area if you need to mobilize additional crews. All that is, is if you haven't already thought about it and you're a new roofing company or even if you're an existing roofing company and you haven't done the due diligence, spend the time and do it now. So, hey, If anybody's listening, you have any questions, you can give me a call. I'll be happy to walk you through the process. Yep, John's been there, done that. So with that, John, I think we've hit a lot of topics here. We'll save yep. some more for, uh, for next week. But I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, as always, I'm Trent Connie. This is John Kenny, Law & Mortar. Stay tuned for, for more next week. Thanks.